Welcome to another episode of the Misadventures of an Inspired Woman podcast. Today, our guest is Aisha Francis. Underscoring everything that Aisha does is her love for God and people. She is your quintessential purpose provocateur, business strategist with over 25 years of diverse leadership and business experience across the corporate, charitable, and chosen, aka entrepreneurial sectors. Called upon as a thought leader, creative visionary, and prolific speaker, Aisha has the gift of connecting narratives, experiences, and purpose seamlessly with structure and strategy to energize, motivate, and inspire purpose-driven action and achievement. Aisha is an author, heads up her namesake business strategy and consultant agency, Aisha K. Francis, and is also the founder and executive director of Project Restore, FIBI, Families Impacted by Incarceration. In 2020, Aisha was named as a recipient of the 100 Accomplished Black Canadian Women Awards, and she continues to broaden her commitment to advocacy, community engagement, and leadership through mentorship and various board directorship roles. Above all, Aisha's greatest joy is her family, her six children, grandson, and grandpets. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I feel like lately I've been starting all my episodes like this. We met on Clubhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we did. We ended up in a phenomenal room together. Yeah, and I think you started the room, right? Was that your room? Yes, it was the Canadian room. Yeah, <laughs> I we said, were... <laughs> I love finding the international rooms and going in there and see what people are talking about, particularly the ones with Black people in it. So I ended mm-hmm. up in a Canadian room, and I literally was telling my friends that day, I was like, I was talking to some Canadians this morning. <laughs> 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 because it's just like, on your average given day, you know, as global as the world is and and in terms of us being able to connect with people no matter where they're at, we still kind of stay in our own little bubbles. And I think I think on Clubhouse or some other venues, you're able to sort of um, pop out and meet some different people. Mm-hmm. And what I love about Clubhouse, too, is that it's a lot more interactive, right? So we're not just following each other on Instagram and sort of vicariously experiencing a relationship together, we can actually engage and really get to know people, right? Know what they're about and then connect. Yeah. And the thing is, it's interesting. I was in a room last night and someone came in and it's someone that we follow each other for years on Instagram, but it was the first Mm -hmm. time we actually interacted together in the same space. So that was, yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, you, I just read your bio. Um, you do all these amazing things and you've done all these amazing things. But what we really want to get at is like, who is Aisha and how did she get here? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is a deep question. You know what? That's such an interesting question, because I think a lot of times and for many years, you can easily describe yourself like who am I based upon sort of like what you do or some of the other titles that you wear. And I am in the process now of really trying to refine who I am apart from, you know, the titles that I have. And especially after experiencing a year like 2020, which was an incredible year of loss for myself and my family. I know we all experienced the pandemic and, you know, the racial uprising and, you know, all of those things as well. But on top of that, I think for many of us, it was compounded by personal things that didn't take a halt uh, Mm -hmm. during that. So who am I? I am a quiet woman, you know, generally speaking. I like to think of myself as an unboxed introvert. So I am deeply private, deeply introverted, and yet I don't want to live in a box of, you know, not being able to accomplish all that I am supposed to accomplish. I feel like there's a big call in my life. And I'm very deeply immersed in, you know, knowing what my purpose is and living that out. So my favorite scripture is uh, Ephesians 4.1, to live a life worthy of the calling received. And I, I add audaciously to that. So I'm a bit of an audacious woman. I live outside of the box. 
I'm a risk taker. I have done things in my life that people have thought all kinds of things about. Some have thought maybe that's a little irresponsible. Maybe that's a little risky. But I have always felt like if we don't do what we believe we're called to do, then we end up living inside limits and other people's expectations. And I've never been that person. And so, you know, I think my life has formed me in a very particular way. I'm a Canadian-born person, yet a lot of my childhood was spent on the island of Antigua, where my parents are from. Nice. And I feel like I'm, yeah, so I am a Antiguan girl at heart, and I feel like a lot of my experiences there formed sort of that, you know, tenacious, audacious, bold kind of, you know, she's quiet, she's reserved. She can come across as a little um, stuck up sometimes, but she's very warm. She's very loving and cares a lot about leaving a, a legacy and an impact in the lives of every person she comes into contact with. Lovely. So I know I like I sent you last season of the podcast and podcast is called mm-hmm. Misadventures. Like what were your thoughts in terms of, okay, so what would I say? What, what, what? What did what resonated with me? Like what tell me about what your thoughts were? I love that because I think um the misadventures, I feel like it is those pieces of our life that create the balance and the beauty and the fullness of our lives. I've been really wrestling with this recently in the last few weeks. I went away a couple of weeks ago now and really not um, adding, if I can say it this way, adding the wrong judgment to my life experiences. So I think when we think of misadventure, you know, it can come across as something that might be negative, but I don't know that that is true anymore with my life. I think that I've categorized experiences and even emotions as like good or bad, uh, positive or negative, healthy, unhealthy, you know, this type of thing. And now looking at my life and thinking about all of those misadventures, all of those mishaps that have led me to this specific place and formed me into the woman that I am, um, who can think critically about circumstances, who can draw uh, theory and learning from circumstances. And that's really critical to some of the work that I do with families impacted by incarceration and really embrace uh, the totality and accept the totality of what my life is. And so I love that. I love, I love the misadventures. I think those are the times when we find out really who we are, what we're capable of, who other people are. And um, we kind of forge the uh, unbeaten path of our lives. So in terms of some of the misadventures, detours, lessons, and your purpose, I know I came into a room the other night, you were sort of talking a little bit about your story in terms of how Mm -hmm. your family's been impacted by incarceration. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular, and I wouldn't even say it's a misadventure, right? Because it con- there continues to be an impact on your family. It's, it's a part mm-hmm. of the journey, really, the never-ending journey. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, um, that particular story is that uh, our family is a family that was impacted by incarceration. And as you mentioned, as part of my bio, I head up an organization that supports families impacted by incarceration. And it's actually something I never thought I would do. I was happy in my corporate career. But, you know, when I reflected in October of 2012, and it is that specific because it was such a significant shift for me in my life, when I reflected on the experiences of my own family, I realized that there was a lot of work to be done um, in that area. So I met my husband. He's my soon-to-be ex-husband at this point, unfortunately, but it is what it is. Um, I met him in high school. And so we had a long life together, almost 30 years together. And, you know, during our entire time together, he was in and out of the system. And so when you're a little bit younger, it's just kind of like the casualties of dating someone who uh, hasn't got their life together, if I can say it that way, right? But as we started to have children, uh, a lot of that changed. And it was like, you got to get your life together. You've got to change. You've got to do all this stuff. But 
he wasn't. And so we went through a few really serious incidences of him being incarcerated. The most serious offense happened in 2004. Uh, at this point, we had six children. We, we still have six children, but they were aged eight months to 12 years old at that point. And um, our home was raided by the police and he was arrested and subsequently sentenced to seven years in prison. And, you know, while we had had the experiences of, you know, the stigma of um, having a husband that's incarcerated, the stigma of being a big family and oftentimes me being perceived as a single parent, uh, a black family, all of these things. Uh, I say that that arrest and incarceration was the most serious because a lot of the networks and structure that we had built around ourselves as a family that were helping us to move into a different part of our lives. I thought he had left that life behind. They all were gone. So we moved to the suburbs. Um, I was working in corporate, like I said. I was actually on maternity leave, but you know, when this happened, all of our neighbors stopped speaking to us mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let their children play with my children. Uh, we had what you guys in the States called child services. We called children's aid society up here in Canada. I had them now in my life and, you know, investigating whether or not my home was a healthy home for my children. I had to deal with their teachers in the school. I had to deal with uh, my friends and my family who were like, hmm, what's going on? And decide them deciding whether or not they wanted to maintain certain relationships with me, which was also difficult because, again, you're losing a lot of the structure and the support that you need. And then my church. I was actively involved in my church. And so you've got a lot of people now similarly sort of withdrawing from you, not interacting with you the same. I was a children's ministry worker, a youth ministry worker. I was on the dance. I started the dance team there on the music team. So all of these things, these, you know, I had to deal with a lot of my own value in these circumstances and trying to hold my head up when I was also questioning whether or not I was suitable to maintain a lot of these positions that I had held and, and the integrity around that. And so, <clears throat> and then outside of that, you know, the impact that it had on my children, you know, them being quite traumatized by uh, the police coming into the home the way that they did, uh, their, their dad being gone and what that meant with respect to relationships and, you know, the embarrassment that they faced in having to uh, know that some of their classmates were aware of the situation. So there was a lot there around, you know, how our family was perceived and how we needed to shore up our own base, but then navigate a lot of the spaces that we were also a part of. So taking it back to teenage Aisha, teenage Aisha meets this mm -hmm. guy at school. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know how our teenage brains sort of ah. um, interpret people, mm -hmm. right? But I would imagine you were, you were impressed. Um, what was it that for teenage Aisha that this person seemed like because you describe yourself as just quiet and all these things mm -hmm. and just based on what you're saying now this just seems like a totally opposite type person I am so glad you asked this question because when you asked me the other question I sort of wanted to start there but I thought okay <laughs> let me answer her question so I love this question because I have thought of this often so my husband and I are complete opposites and I think uh, outside of the environment that we, we were in, we probably would have never met. We grew up in the same area, but he lived on the north side. I lived on the south side. So we actually knew a lot of people. Um, you know, we had a lot of friends in common, but we had actually never met until we got to high school. Okay. So when I look at my why him, uh, growing up, I have, I had experienced a lot of sexual abuse and also grew up in a single parent home where my father didn't live very far from me, but I was his first child, him and my mom, I was their first child. And then, you know, he started another family. And so I wasn't a priority to him. And I feel like, uh, and he was also one of the people who had abused me. And so, you know, I feel like that was a big factor in this. Um, my entire life, I was fast tracking to go into medicine. I had aspired to be a plastic surgeon all of my life. 
My mom was a nurse. I used to read her medical books. I knew from a very young age, I would talk to my doctor who was a black man. And we would talk a lot about what it took to go to medical school. And then at around grade 11, I actually had a breakdown. And like I said, I was accelerating. I I had skipped a grade. And so I was really fast tracking on this career path. And then all of a sudden, I was no longer interested in school. I would go, go pretend to go to school and get on the subway and ride the subway all day. Mm. And so at that time, I didn't know that I was experiencing a mental health crisis and depression because we didn't have language for it. But in hindsight, I realized that's what was happening. And there really wasn't any resources to support me in that. And so enter in now meeting this person, right? And he is When I first meet him, I'm not interested in him. I don't like him. Um, A friend of mine liked him. I set him up with my friend. I'm absolutely not interested, but he was interested in me and he literally pursued me. And so we became very good friends. We would walk home from school every day. He was very attentive. Um, Again, I grew up in a single parent home and there was a period of time when my mom worked out of the province. And so she would be gone for 10 days and home for four days. And I would be responsible for caring for myself. And my I'm two sorry, I'm going to ask you to pause for one second so you could break down that province thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so provinces are similar to you guys. Okay. Um, So we are in Ontario. And so she was working in another province called um, Alberta. Okay. Okay. So she, she would literally fly out to Alberta and be gone for 10 days and then come back into Ontario and be home for four days. Okay. And so um, what he was doing is because I was home alone a lot with my, my younger sisters who were 10 years younger than me and they were twins. You know, um, if I wanted to go out, like I remember one time we were just friends, but I wanted to go out to a party and he came and babysat my sisters for me. So essentially it was this process of very intentional on his part of becoming my best friend and then, you know, lavishing a lot of attention on me that I had felt throughout my life. I hadn't gotten the attention I had gotten from men previous to that felt like they were all violations and very, um, you know, not great interactions with men. And here came this person who in that moment was very intentional about, you know, pursuing me, showing up as being there for me and really breaking down that barrier of I'm not interested in you till I got to the point where I was like, oh my goodness, I think I really like this guy. And at that point, we became boyfriend and girlfriend and started having our kids like back to back to back to back pretty much. I appreciate this part of your journey so much because first of all, thank you for sharing that vulnerable piece of you in terms of what happened to you at a young age. Um, And I recognize the the trauma and how difficult that could be to talk about. But I think it it really colors because I think folks will see you or hear you and be like, okay, she's this great, intelligent woman who, you know, has all these accomplishments. How does she end up in this situation? And I think Mm -hmm. as you were telling that, you realize how important and people, but when people, I think when people look from the outside in, they're like, this doesn't make sense. They, they're looking at like yeah. the statistics and the numbers and the, mm-hmm. you know, like all these other indicators, but then I seeing like the human side of like a teenage girl who'd been violated over and over again, even by one person who should have protected her at all costs. Uh, you have this responsibility of these, these your younger sisters and you're not necessarily getting validation. And here comes this person that's giving you all of this validation. And yeah. Yeah. And then even, even after, like, even after we started having children, I left the relationship, I think two or three times, like literally physically got up at one point, I took my two youngest children and left the country and went to Antigua for like a month with them in an attempt to um, get out of this relationship and then came back with the promises of it's going to be better. But I think so you left point, because so you left because of the, the, the activity that he was involved in. 
Correct. Correct. And um, and even when I moved to the suburbs, I actually left when he was incarcerated. And, you know, again, he didn't know when I moved to the suburbs with my children. And at this point, we had four because I would always take him back. But again, um, I recognize now sort of what that pattern was. And it was twofold. It was the trauma from my childhood and my teenage years. But it was also at this point me really not wanting to become a statistic. I had grown up without my father and I was very intentional that I didn't want that life for my children. And so I really feel like there there was a part of me that was determined to make this work, support this man, um, build my family. You know, we had a lot of children and I was almost like, where, where am I going? Right? Like, let's build a family. Let's create a life for our kids. Let's create a life that's different from the life that we had. And so I was intentional um, and backing that up with, as a faith person, you know, scripture and prayer. At one point, I felt like the people at my church were like, Lord, please help her because the amount of times that she's at the altar is almost embarrassing now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was all of these pieces around Again, not wanting to introduce another layer of shame into my life um, of, you know, this is not going the way that it's supposed to go, you know. And so I know that I fought a lot for that. And so now I've gotten to the point where that is no longer the truth, right? And so we are going through this process. We are currently separated. And, you know, he made some choices that were his choices to make. But I am no longer in that space of feeling like um, a scared, you know, traumatized young woman who wants to create um, a certain picture of Mm -hmm. who our family is. I believe that my kids are old enough now. They're phenomenal young people. What I had hoped for them, I have seen come to pass so far. And so I no longer have to remain in a relationship with someone who is so incongruent with who I am as a person. So just to clarify, a lot of your continuing with the relationship, it was like, I need to, I need to have show this picture of a a complete family of mom Mm -hmm. and dad and kids, regardless of what's taking place internally, regardless of, of whatever, this is the picture that I, I need to present. Yeah, and it was it was what I wanted to present, but I think it was also what I wanted for my children. Right. In my mind, a lot of my um, low self-esteem, a lot of the issues that I had as a young person, as a young adult, as an adult, stemmed from my identity crisis of not knowing a part of myself, which which came from my dad. Um, I recognized when I was like mid thirties, I went by my dad's house one day and I was working from home and he said, come work from my house. And we were, uh, I had lost my brother. And so we were kind of working on our relationship because my brother had passed away. And I went to his house and there was a lot of things about him that I was like, oh, that's why I do this. This is what, you know, that, cause I was very different from my mom and I couldn't, I could never place myself like who is Aisha because I didn't look like my mom. But when I sat at 30 something with my dad in his house, seeing his mannerisms, seeing little things that he did, the quirks that he had, I was like, oh, that's a piece of myself. So I felt like and without knowing that at the time, I felt like part of me trying to hold my family together was to give my children this life of having mother and father in the house, whatever that meant, because he wasn't, (laughs) he wasn't really there. And what I recognized to a degree is that I think I almost married my father. So what I mean by that is, you know, the relationship I had with my husband, it was convenient in the way that it mirrored my childhood experiences with my dad. He would show up And then he would disappear for long extended periods of time. He would be there and I would think, oh yeah, he's here and we're having a good time and we're going to McDonald's and, you know, I'm hanging out with my brothers and at his house because he had a beautiful home. Um, And then he would make a lot of promises and then 
he wouldn't follow through on those promises and it would be months and months and then we'd do this over again and what I found was that was a similar pattern that I had with my husband where he would come and we'd have a great time we would be loving we would reunite you know we'd have another child everything was happy it was family and then he'd be gone and so I recognized that there was a pattern there um yeah so how do you you mentioned earlier some of the abuse that you um, experienced at the hands of your father how do you get from that to being able to sit with him and talk to him and have some sort of relationship or interaction with him how how do you get Mm -hmm. there That's a really good question. I think it took some time. And so he wasn't the only person that sexually abused me. And every person that did was someone who was um, a family member. Like we had close proximal relationships, right? Not distant cousins or uncles, but like literally um, stepdad, different people, right? So... um, how did I, how have I gotten to that place? I think for one, the one thing that I worked through was um, looking at my father differently now than I did as a child. So recognizing that I don't need him anymore. There was a part in my life where I was very needy for a father. And I got to a point in my adulthood that I recognized that I didn't need him to be a father to me, but I needed to have some interaction or relationship with him to better understand myself. And so my goal of wanting to interact with him came from that place. I also recognize because my faith background, because of, I think, a lot of how I'm designed, I am a high forgiving person, but I temper that with understanding that Uh, forgiveness, I get to choose that even though I'm forgiving you, I get to choose the intensity of the relationship that I have with you. And so I have also been very good at establishing certain boundaries, whether they are boundaries that I share with you or boundaries that I don't share with you. So I know um, how intense I can let this relationship be. And so I think that's another way that I've managed it. And, um, we, I have thought often about, you know, if I need to revisit these conversations with these men, um, and I've decided that I, I no longer need to. And so I have just allowed myself to heal. I have gone to therapy and, you know, and currently in therapy dealing with uh, some of these things and talking them through and understanding Um, why I do certain things that I do or respond in certain ways to certain things. And I think that has been a process that has helped me immensely. And then I write and I think, and I think a lot. And so one of the other pieces that I think has helped me is what I said before, understanding that all of these things culminate into making me who I am, I think has helped me to um, not not um so i'm gonna say accept but not in the way that like what you did was right but just sort of accept that this is my human experience and then what i use that for is i use it in my work i use it in the way that i interact with people i use it in the way that i provide mentorship to young women who are experiencing uh similar things i use it in the way that i can have empathy towards individuals who are coming into my practice and we are talking about how did they get into a relationship with a man like that and really being able to hone in on some of those things. And I feel like part of my experience allows me to do that. And it's very carpathetic in knowing that um, I can actually turn, you know, my pain into my purpose. So. I love that. How, so I'm listening to you and I'm listening to your life. Nothing about your life says that you should go on and be successful in corporate and be able to provide for all six of these children and live in the suburbs and, you know, evolve into all these things that you are today. And everything about your life says that you're a fighter um, and that 
there's been like a lot of pain and confusion and disappointments that you've had to work through. Uh-huh. Like how, Aisha, like how? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me Make it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you said that. Oh my goodness. I actually thought that phrase before I got on the call with you. I was thinking about some work that I do with these entrepreneurs and I was thinking how you know when I work with them that's often the question like Aisha make it make sense (laughs) so funny that you said that um I don't know how to make sense of it all I can say to you is that through the darkest moments of my life I have anchored myself in my faith okay you said it in my bio underscoring everything that I am who I am is my love for God and I recognize his love for me and I don't know if that's where well I can't say I don't know I believe that's where my strength comes from I I have taken the time to read the word of God for myself I have sat with the word of God I have questioned the word of God I've had intimate conversations with God I've listened to sermons and disagreed with perspectives of, you know, um, significant thought leaders in Christian Christendom um, because I have interpreted those things a lot deep, more deeply for myself um, to resonate and to carry me through. So I don't know how to make sense of it. I, I just know that you're right. Like I have a, I think it's that side of me that says I won't, be put into a box like I refuse to be just a statistic I refuse to be I think that the things that were in me that drove me as a child to at six and seven years old sit on Saturdays and read medical books I think that stuff is still a part of my design and so the way that I'm designed I think has helped me to fight through and to push through. And if I undergird that and add that to my faith, and if I add to that um, what I want for my children and how they needed to um, feel and be loved, I think those are the things that made me draw on strength that I didn't have. Um, I think my honesty with myself, looking at all layers of myself, which I do, I, I know the good stuff. I also know the bad stuff, right? And I don't dismiss the bad stuff necessarily. Some of it I work on. Some of it I set, I accept as, you know, that's that's a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. That's how you think, you know? And so um, I think all of that allows me just to say to myself, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to judge it, this is Aisha's life. Like, this is my human experience. And it's my responsibility um, to decide the life that I want. And so, yeah, a lot of this stuff happened to me. And I have thought so many times about who I could have been. Like, I could have been, um, you know, an addict. I could have been, like, there's other things I could have been. Um, but I tell you, I fought through a lot of those temptations that wanted me to move in a particular direction or could have easily taken me in that direction because I just decided that that's not what I wanted for myself or my children. Um, And I think there's a lot more that I have to achieve. There's some goals that I have not hit. There's some stability that I'd love in my life that I'm still working towards. But I think every day I get up and for the most part, some days I don't. Some days I chill. Some days I take a day and do nothing and lie in bed and just think or go for a walk. And again, it could be perceived as irresponsible or not the right thing to do. You're not hustling, Aisha. Come on, you need to hustle to make the life you want. And I disagree with that. I live the life at the pace of grace that is good for me. And I think all of those things have made me able to hold and to process and to accept and to move from what my life um, experiences have been. Wow. (laughs) That's the only (laughs) word I have. 
is wow. <laughs> so you you've worked through all this stuff. You've been successful in a number of things. And you mentioned that you started this organization for families impacted by incarceration. So you're like, I never thought that I would actually do that. So why? Why why did you think you weren't going to do that? And what was the push for you to do it? So it never crossed my mind. Again, I was very much get the job, create the life yourself and the children. So as I mentioned, I finally landed an amazing career at a a global company doing market strategy and planning work. And I loved the work that I was doing. I was midway through my seventh year with the company and I went on a retreat and the retreat was called History Makers. And it was asking you, you know, what is the history that you are making? What is the legacy that you want to leave? And as part of the three and a half day process, we were challenged to come up with something that would impact the lives of a thousand people. And so in that moment, I thought I was going to respond to that piece of homework by fleshing out a youth program that I had thought of like like 12 years before that. And as I sat down to do the homework, the blueprint for my organization is actually what I came up with. And so it was just a homework piece. I left that, came home, and literally couldn't stop thinking about this organization. I thought about everything my own family had been through. I thought about where we currently were, and we were out of my husband being incarcerated. He had been like in his third or fourth year of not having any incidents, um, and he's currently been incident-free for about eight years now. Um, And so I was just thinking about the progress we had made how well the kids, my children were doing and thought, "Hmm, I wonder if this is something, if I could take some of the things that I did with my own family, package it, would I be able to support other families in doing the same and, and creating a pathway out of what incarceration and gang activity and criminality uh, sometimes leads families intergenerationally into? Can I disrupt those cycles of incarceration for other families like I had done for my own? That was the thinking. And then I was like, "Uh, probably no other family has been through what we've been through, which we often feel like when we're going through something. So I started to do research. I would go to work during the day, deal with my children when I came home, and then do research into the night. What is this problem? A lot of the data was U.S., but I tried to find some Canadian data. Not a lot was there, but I did find some and recognized that there was nothing here to support families. Everything was very, very much focused on the ex-offenders, some programs for children, but nothing for someone like me, who was the spouse of someone who was also facing a lot of it, and nothing that collectively worked with the entire family um, around rebuilding relationships and fortifying strength strengthening the family itself to navigate wholly out of incarceration. And so that was really uh, the birthing of Phoebe. I reduced my work week to 90%, which meant I worked four days, an hour longer, and then took a day off on Wednesdays and started to connect with people, continue my research, think about the framework, develop programs or what I thought were ideas, generate the ideas. And then uh, two year, a year and a half after I started that process, I resigned from my corporate job to do this full time. Wow. And so you've been doing that how long now? Uh, January 13th was seven years. Yeah. Wow. Since we became wow. a, chair, a not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely. I, I'm just proud of you. And I know our listeners are proud of you because you've just persevered through so much, not just to take care of yourself and your family, but to be a light to others as well. Um, I think that's really remarkable. So tell us about your kids. So you have six kids. What are, what are yeah. their current ages and what are they doing? Okay. So six children. I'll start at the top. Mm-hmm. So my oldest daughter, she is 29 years old. She is uh, a behavioral neuroscientist, so she works with uh, patients who have acquired brain injuries, supporting them through uh, their recovery. 
my old my son after her. He went to school to be a welder. He's currently not doing welding, but he does work for the post services here in Canada. My son after her, oh, sorry, and he is 26. Mm-hmm. My son after him is 24 years old. He is currently completing his degree uh, in human rights and is going to, I'm not sure, at one point he was looking at policing, but I think he may be considering something in the justice sector, maybe along the lines of a human rights lawyer or something. He's sort of exploring what he's going to be doing. And then my daughter after him is 22 years old and she is currently in her fifth year at university. She is taking physics in French. Then I have a 19 year old. She's currently home with me because of COVID, but she, and would be in her second year of university. She goes to university in England. And so she's taking this year off because of COVID and hopefully we'll get her back to school in September. But she's in England and she's studying neuroscience. And then my last boy rounding out the crew, he is currently 17 years old. He is in grade 12 and currently applying for his post-secondary, which may be in e-commerce is what he's looking into. So um, they are phenomenal young people. I feel like each and every one of them is absolutely inspiring to me. My youngest daughter, she is a poet who has the most provocative um, slam poetry that I've heard. And they all have this passion and drive and kindness for people. So not only are they really, um, I think, good, a good-looking, academically successful and accomplished young people, they are also um, incredibly wonderful human beings in the way that they, they live and serve other people as well. I'm very yeah. proud. I'm very proud. When I when I came into that room on Clubhouse, I mean, and it wasn't one of those super long rooms. Um, there was yeah. just something about you. There was just something in your voice that, like, I was like, this woman just has so much grace and strength. And there's just something about her. Like, I need I need to know her. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, even when I came into the other room and you were talking sort of about your story, I was like, wow, I never would have guessed that about her, but I still, I need to know her. Like, and as you're describing your kids and their ages, I'm picturing a very young mother with all these kids in tow, moving from place to place, maybe getting on the subway, getting them ready for school, like all these things and mm-hmm. being scared and alone and girl okay <laughs> not <laughs> no but it's when you it's talk real. about your when you talk about your story and then you talk about what your kids are doing today i can't help but picture that and picture you now and just be like in awe of you and not really knowing you very long, being very grateful for you and for your life and for the light that you are in the world, because that picture of that young mother, to me, it just, yeah, it's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It made me emotional because I, <laughs> I think I had moments of flashbacks <laughs> of some yes, of the things you were saying. Yeah, certainly um, many nights, you know, in my bed crying or in the shower kind of muffling your cries because it wasn't easy. You know, I don't want to paint this picture that we were like, you know, like Mary Poppins and very, you know, it, was, it certainly wasn't that. But I think, you know, um, I loved my children and I made sure to spend time with them. I made sure that we did things. We went to the park and we went for walks and we watched movies and we talked and we prepared dinner together. And so I see that the little things that I thought were insignificant, you know, I wasn't able to take them on trips around the world or anything like that, but the little things, um, have formed them. And most importantly, I interrupted the cycles that their dad and I went through in their lives. And and because of that, I think that they're wonderful human beings, like I said. So um, by the, you know, people used to say, Aisha, how do you do it? And I say, by the grace of God, go I, you know, Um, 
he he helped me. He gave me. We we used to do Saturday nights, seven to nine, around the table. You know, disconnect from devices, disconnect from everything. We're coming around the table and we're just going to talk. And sometimes we'd open the Bible and pick a scripture and, you know, or one of the kids would be responsible, bring a scripture tonight and then, you know, tell us what you think of it and we're going to talk about it. Or sometimes it would be just random stuff. They would ask a question. I'd be like, that's a bit of an inappropriate question, but okay, let's unpack this. And, <laughs> you know, because um, kids are curious. And so I think we just created an environment in the home that was one where it wasn't perfect, you know, um, they, they had an opportunity to share with myself and their dad. I created an exercise at one point where they were able to write us both letters, a free for all, say anything that you need to say. And they did, they were brutally honest, you know, and I saw the cracks in my foundation as a mother in some of those, you know, mom, you're, you favor this one. You're sometimes you're mean to me, you know, like little things like Mm -hmm. this, you could see, um, but what it did was I gave them an opportunity to say to me and to their dad, they did it to him for him as well, um, how we were as parents. And I wrote each one of them letters telling them what I saw in them, who I thought they were. I didn't, um, when they gave me their letters, I created the atmosphere where I wasn't going to uh, come up with a bunch of reasons or excuses, but just receive what they said and apologize and uh, commit to doing better. And so I feel like it was stuff like that that really helped to create that atmosphere in my home. And all of that, it wasn't a book that I got it from. It was literally those tears at night saying, God, I don't know how I can make it through tomorrow when I've got to get up at such and such a time, get all these kids out the house in the winter which is a whole nother situation <laughs> mm. um, and get to work and show up and perform at work so that I can keep my job so that I can keep a roof over our heads and food on the table and then come home, finish the day, sometimes jump back on my computer to finish work and do it again tomorrow. But um, I think love and commitment and uh, making small pockets of quality time is what it was. Your kids must love you so much. They, they, they do. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I, sometimes they say things to me that are incredibly, I'm just like, wow. Like I, I sit and I cry because um, I had a, I'll, I'll just share this really quickly, but I had a taking stock exercise in early December where I invited about 15 people that know me, different women, uh, clients, minister friends and my daughters and what they were doing was they were sharing with me words that they felt described who I was the impact that I had and sort of my legacy and when I heard my daughters speak about me um, it was so powerful and the other women in the room said to me Aisha you know what's amazing is that a lot of us don't know each other And what we said about you is so consistent. They all had different words, but the consistency. And then they said, and then to hear your daughters say the same thing is very profound. And so my children do love me and I love them. Yeah, it's so like you're like you're getting emotional. I'm like, I'm getting emotional. Um, Somebody's chopping onions over here, y'all. But I just, again, I just, and this is what, this is what the podcast is about, an inspired woman. It's not necessarily a woman who has figured it out, but a woman who has had these misadventures and have mm-hmm. had real moments of, of being afraid and being alone and not being confused, not knowing what to do, but somehow figuring it out and then taking that next step in being an inspiration for others. Um, and, and, and the way that you're an inspiration for others is by showing the most vulnerable parts of you, right? Because you could be like, I'm this amazing brand strategist. You're like, no, I I was impacted (laughs) by incarceration. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Seriously. Yeah. And I, I think that's powerful. So I thank you so, so much for, um, being so open and sharing with us and, you're amazing. You're amazing. So the last thing is our lightning round. Okay. <laughs> so it's just a bunch of random questions. Don't think about it. Just. Okay. Okay. Just sit. Yeah. What's your favorite color? 
indigo. Okay. <laughs> wow, I've never heard anybody say indigo before. People usually say blue. I love, I love Yeah, blue. it used to be purple. Okay. And then recently I, I realized that I have a lot of navy in my thing. And I realized that the color that I love is indigo. It's sort of the mix of the two. Lovely. Your favorite dessert? Creme brulee. Mm, celebrity crush? Ooh, Christian Keys. Oh my goodness, yes. Oh my goodness. Mm. <laughs> I think, you know, he flies under a lot of people's radar. He does, right? but I sat and watched some YouTube content from him. Like, I came across him and I was like, he is fine, but he also has an incredible story and he seems to be a really incredible man. So, I saw him in one of the Tyler Perry plays. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if it was the one that I saw live or not, but yeah, that was the first time I encountered him some years ago. Um, yeah. Your guilty pleasure. Ooh, guilty pleasure. Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm unapologetically as a person who loves her sleep. I'm like two o'clock. I should be doing something. I need to take a nap. Sleep. Lovely. Last question. Who plays Aisha in the story of her life? And what genre is it? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Is it a stage play? Is it a musical? Ooh. Um, wow, what a fabulous question. Um, Sanaa Lathan. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a dramatic comedy. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Love yeah. it. So thank you so much. Um, We are here. Thank you for being a part of our tribe of goal getters. Um, I know you said you have more goals that you have to accomplish. So we are here cheering you on. Thank Um, you. And thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. I am so pleased that we got to meet and for this opportunity to kind of speak with you. I know you heard a lot about me, but I really look forward as I look you in your eyes through my camera <laughs> to getting to know you and continuing to build a friendship with you. I, I would be honored to do that because I think what you're doing is phenomenal as well. Yes, yes, yes. Let's continue mm-hmm. to talk and connect and just all the best for you for 2021. But I'll be talking to you soon, I'm sure. Yeah. Thank you, Keisha. Dr. Keisha. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Hey, inspired person. Thank you so much for listening. I don't know about you, but Aisha's story is one of the most inspiring stories that I've heard in a long time. I know that some of the subject matter was a bit heavy. So if you were in any way triggered by anything that was mentioned in this episode, I suggest that you reach out to a therapist. Therapy for Black Girls is a great resource as well as you can go through your company's insurance for that. Be sure to click subscribe on the podcast, like, share, and follow me on Instagram at Dr. Keisha, that's D-R underscore K-E-I-S-H-A, where I'll be posting some bonus content from this interview. Thank you for listening. And as always, be intentional.